Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 with Pastor John King. Sorry about that. Full of distractions today. My goodness. Well, welcome. Welcome to our Sunday service. Everyone, it's good to see you guys here. We are going to begin our study of the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And we're going to cover uh, all of chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 today. Um, as we approach the book of Thessalonians, this letter, keep in mind, many of you are aware, the key theme of the letter, and that's the coming of Jesus Christ for his church, the rapture of the church. In uh, chapter 5 of this letter, verses 9 through 10, we see that it says that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation to our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So that's the key theme going through this first part. Uh, the second part, the second letter to the Thessalonians is a response by Paul and actually, they're both responses by Paul from the reports that he's had uh, through Timothy. Uh, just a little background. Paul planted the church during his second missionary journey. So those of you who have your Bibles and your Bible maps, that took place between A.D. 49 and 51. And Dr. Luke, uh, who wrote it in the book of Acts. So when you follow the book of Acts, it's, very, it's a good study. It's a good read if you want to prepare for our study in Thessalonians. It's just go through and read Paul's journey through the book of Acts. You can, you can read it all in about, you know, a half hour or 45 minutes. And it's a great reminder of what Paul's been doing. We know uh, that... Paul left on his second journey. He came uh, through Lystra and Derby, which is in modern-day Turkey. But he originally started in Jerusalem. He went north. He went through the city of Damascus. He went through Antioch, Tarsus, where he is from. That's where Timothy joined them when they went to Lystra and Derby. And then, as you recall, recently, Paul and Silas visited Philippi. And this was that famous Macedonian call. And he crossed the Aegean Sea and into Philippi. And we've, got, we've covered the book of Philippians recently. We remember the great earthquake and then the uh, supernatural jailbreak when Paul and Silas were singing hymns in their, while they were locked up. And there was a supernatural, it was a great earthquake and everybody was freed and the jailer was about to kill himself. He was about to take his own life with a sword and Paul said, don't do that. The Holy Spirit spoke to him and he became a believer. And after this, they kind of were, again, you know, Paul's always kind of getting run out of town, if you notice, as you read the book of Acts. And so Paul and Silas came down to Thessalonica. And I'm going to read a portion of Acts 17, verses 1 through 4. You can turn there if you would like. But this is how it came. Uh, Paul arrived in Thessalonica. He says in Acts 17, verses 1 through 4, he says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for three Sabbaths. So Paul spent a grand total of three weekends 
with this, uh, what became the church in Thessalonica. And he reasoned with them. He, you know, Paul would always go to the Jew first. If there, was a sab- if there was a synagogue in the places that he went, he would go there first. And it says here, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. This is the Messiah. You know, think about the nation Israel because they are on our hearts and minds right now. We're all praying for them. And many of them have not received their Messiah yet. But here Paul was 2,000 years ago explaining to these Jews that this is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And it says in verse 4 that some of them, the Jews, were persuaded. Some of them came to know the Lord. But notice that with a great multitude of the devout Greeks, in other words, a whole bunch of Gentiles came and believed. And remember, that wall of separation has been destroyed by Jesus. And he says, and not a few of the leading women, they joined Paul and Silas. So while he was there for three consecutive Sabbath days, three Saturdays, if you will, many were converted, not very many Jews. In fact, many of the Jews, however, were quite angered and they became jealous of Paul. And so that caused a riot. You know, people get angry, they cause riot. They start smashing things and breaking things and making false accusations. And in this case, these people were accusing Paul of claiming that there was another king, and that would be Jesus Christ, which, of course, was an act of treason against the Roman Empire. And so these these rabble-rousers, they stirred up the crowd, But before Paul could be arrested again and thrown in jail, the brethren, those who believed, now this took place rapidly. There was rapid growth of the church. The brethren sent Paul and Silas by night down to Berea. And then, of course, when they realized, some of these angry Jews from Thessalonica realized that Paul, there he was, he's not too far away. He's only, you know, a couple miles down the road in Berea. They came and they they stirred up the crowds in Berea. And so what happened at that point was Paul was immediately put on a ship to Athens. By himself, his uh, Timothy and Silas stayed behind. He would call for them later. And then when Paul visited Athens, again, this is all in Acts, book of Acts. He witnesses at the Areopagus, you know, the altar of the unknown God. And then he finally comes down to Corinth. He works his way down that Roman road to Corinth. And this is where he spent nearly two years. And this is where Paul wrote these letters. He was concerned, based on the reports that he got from Timothy, that they would not be able to withstand the threat of persecution. When you read the letter of, to the Thessalonians, not only is it one of the first letters Paul ever wrote, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, but keep in mind he only spent three weeks there. And when you see what they're, you know, he, know that he's writing, there's a church in an area that's just basically surrounded and saturated by paganism. Yet the gospel came in and changed. So the gospel changes everything, doesn't it? And when it goes around and it comes to places where there's no gospel, this is why we support our missionaries. This is why we support those who go to the places where the word of God has not been preached. This is why you and I need to go to the places in our country, in our neighborhoods where the word of God 
and the truth of the gospel and the good news of the gospel has not been presented. Because it only takes, God's word will not return void. It only takes a short time sometimes. Sometimes the ground is really hard and we have to persevere. But sometimes here you see. And so Paul was concerned and he, there he was in Corinth and he wrote this letter. And Timothy, which we're going to see in chapter 3, Timothy reported back and told Paul that they endured the persecution. But now they had concerns about, guess what? The Lord's return. When is Jesus? When is Messiah going to come back? When's he going to come and take his church home? This is the same thing we ask today, isn't it? The same concerns we have. And so sometime between A.D. 50 and 51, Paul wrote this letter. Now, what are we going to look at today in this first chapter? I just want to tell you we're going to cover some things today if you're taking notes. We're going to start with the very typical greeting of Paul's letter. How he prays for them. Always a great example. When we see how Paul prays for them, we can consider our own prayer life. And also, he's going to affirm and declare one of the most important doctrines in the Bible, and that's the doctrine of election. We're going to talk about that today. And then we're going to see how Paul illustrates the evidence of what a life in Christ should look like. So you'll be able to see, you know, you and I in this simple letter, in these very, these 10 verses today, you and I can, we can bounce it across, back in front of our own walk with the Lord and see if it's true and we can be strengthened. And then finally, we'll see, as you'll see in every single chapter of this first letter, the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's read our passage. It's 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 10, 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you that you have brought this word to us today, Lord God. Your word is never null and void. It is always powerful and living and sharp as a two-edged sword. 
And may you speak to our hearts once again in a way that only you can. And may we we receive your word in a way that only a true believer can. So, Father, please go before us. Soften our hearts now as we turn our attention to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. We start out in verse 1 where we see Paul's typical greeting pattern. Now at this stage, you might say, you know, gee, Pastor John, we get the same greeting every time we read a letter from Paul. I mean, can't we just skip that part and just get to the meat of it? But I want to tell you, of course you know the answer to that, right? But I want to tell you that just a simple greeting, you're going to see that it is full to the brim with the gospel message. He says, uh, he says first of all, we have the human author, he, he, his associates, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, and the divine author. Now, it's good for us if you, if you have that question in your mind about, you know, these are just the preliminaries of the message. Can we get past it? Is to remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. It's always good when we approach God's word. He says all scripture is given. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so that's why we're here. That's why we're bringing God's word. Every bit of it here at this church. But notice you have a group of leaders. These were co-senders. He he identifies Paul and and Silvanus and Timothy. They all knew, they knew these guys, okay? They They were with them. They were in fellowship together, even for a short period of time. They came to love and know them. Silvanus, or another name for Silvanus you might be more familiar with is Silas. Silas. Uh, He was a Roman citizen. He was the companion of the Apostle Paul on several of his missionary journeys. And we we see him referred to as Silas all through Acts 15, 16, and 17. He is described as a prophet. He's a a leader among the the church members. We, We mentioned that he was imprisoned with Paul at Philippi when the earthquake shook him free and all that that happened. And here he was with Paul as they arrived at Thessalonica. Then we see Timothy, uh, Timotheos, Timotheos, that's it, which means honoring God. And he was a resident of Lystra. Now, he was apparently, he was, his father was Greek and his mother was Jew. And so he was, you know, in that culture, they would call him uh, half Jew and half Greek. And he was Paul's faithful traveling companion. And he's also a fellow laborer. And notice, so they they greet and they say now to the church of the Thessalonians. This is modern day, for those who are getting ready maybe to travel to Greece. This is modern day Thessaloniki or Salonika. This is one of the few Greek cities that has been continually occupied from the Hellenistic era to the present day. From the time that the Jews were started to be dispersed into uh, different parts of the world. So it's an old city. I'd love to go there. Maybe some of you will get to go there. Interesting thing about the Thessalonians. This is something we need to keep in mind for historical context. It was considered a free city. And the reason it was considered a free city in the Roman Empire was because 
they were well-behaved. They were well-behaved citizens, and they had a shrine and a, a, some temple priests, and they gave tribute to the Roman emperor. You know, they, they did everything good Roman citizens should do if they were citizens, but as a city, as a nation, as a country that has been overtaken by the Romans, they behaved themselves very well. They had what's known as an imperial cult, and a temple, as I said, to Caesar with its own priesthood. And this is why Paul became a threat to the local establishment. You know, here he is talking about Jesus, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they're like, that's a clash between what the world would say and what the Roman emperors would say. Oh, no, no, you worship Caesar. And so we know, as we said earlier, that they ran him out of town. Now, as you read in the book of Acts and you study ancient history and you talk, you see archaeological discoveries, you learn that this particular city had numerous images of different gods. And there were, there were dozens and dozens. There were altars and temples to things you may have heard of, like the god of Poseidon or Pan or Hades or Athena and on and on and on. These were the gods that kind of influenced society. See, they were a religious culture, and they believed in many gods. But notice, as we go through it, that he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. He's not just addressing the leaders in the church, but he's addressing the entire group of people. And he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So notice their position this is so important for us. I told you this is our, you know, these are key things to understand that as a Christian, you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In or an. It means that, you know, it's notable that God is co-equal. We, we worship God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal. So Jesus is God. And the first thing that cults will do is they'll try to diminish Jesus' deity. And he says... The important words, you've heard this before, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's summarizing God's work through Jesus, grace that brings people into peaceful or harmonious relationship with God and one another. Now what is grace, what does the grace of God do for you and I? Well, two things. First of all, if you're taking notes, God's grace gives us a right standing with God. Now that would imply that we did not have previously a right standing with God. You had to come and receive the Lord. The Holy Spirit needed to work and convict you of sin. And you needed to repent of your sins and come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's all because of God's grace that he did that because you did not deserve it. I did not deserve it. So it gives us a right standing with God. So grace is part of God's saving activity. It's his action in sending Christ to die in our place and then putting us in that position of being in Christ. Grace is also speaks of God's continued work in our lives. It's not only God's gift of salvation for us in Christ to move us from his wrath to his favor, says one writer, from his enemies to being friends, 
But grace is also part of God's work for us in the ongoing process of sanctification and redemption. And grace continues to come to us throughout the Christian life. You're familiar with the passage. We don't have a slide for this. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though, I, though it, it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. In other words, grace is not only placed in the apostle or any believer in right standing with God, but it also empowers you and I to live and minister and to obey him. Next, we have peace from God. Because of his grace, because of his unmerited favor in presenting Christ's death on our behalf to atone for our sins. And since we have received this grace, this gift of God by faith, we are now at peace with God. The war is over. We are assured of our salvation and we no longer fear his wrath to come. There are many in the world right now, given what's happening in the Middle East, they don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what their future is like. You just, if you could ask, if you could speak to those Jews right now or those Muslims, those that are in Gaza, they don't know what their future holds for them because they don't know Jesus. But that is not the case for you and I. You are assured of salvation. So that is what grace and peace brings to us, brothers and sisters. It is amazing. Another thing we can be reminded of when we think of the word peace, and when you see Benjamin Netanyahu says Shabbat Shalom, when he speaks publicly, Shalom, peace, when he speaks to his people. Peace is a word that it's not just the absence of conflict when you study the Hebrew meaning of it. It's about wholeness and well-being. So many would say that when we think of Paul, when he being a Jew who spoke Greek, when he uses the Greek word for peace, it's probably appropriate for you and I to think of the word Hebrew word shalom. Because it not only affects an individual's relationship with God, but the relationship of the whole community of God together. One writer, Grant, says this. He says, a helpful way to think about peace from a biblical perspective is to see it in contrast to sin. Sin has messed up everything in this world, we know. Sin has devastated not only our actions, but also our consciences. Sin has destroyed our relationships, not only with God, but also with each other. Shalom, or peace, is a word that describes how God is going to set all of those things right. It is a word that describes the way things are supposed to be. So when you hear Paul talk about peace, think of shalom. And so you may lightly think this simple greeting is really nothing, but it is really everything, isn't it? When you realize that it contains the most important truth of all, and that's the gospel message. You and I live in the light of God's promises, don't we? 
Amen for that. I'll take one or two of those. We live in a present hope of a future reality known as heaven, where he will wipe away every tear. And as he cleanses our sinful memories of pain and regret, you think, what's it going to be like in heaven? I know I have these painful memories in my mind. I know the things that I've done wrong. I have guilt in my heart even still. Even though he's cleansing us, he wants to cleanse you. We need to understand that as believers. Sometimes we forget. We are forgiven of our sins, but we forget our need to be cleansed. We need to ask him, Lord, will you cleanse my sins? I know you've forgiven me. But will you remind me that you make me white as snow despite all my bad behaviors? And so as we come into heaven and come into his presence, that's one of the future of hope. Not only is you know, we're going to get new bodies, right? Some of us are really anxious for that. But the fact that he will cleanse all of our sinful memories of the past. And so maybe this hope can have an effect on our own greeting habits. Think of how Paul just greeted the brethren, the brothers and sisters at Thessalonica with grace and peace and a reminder of their standing in Christ. Should we not learn to practice our greetings and farewells with blessings? It's not cool in our society. I know, hey, how's it going? Hey, see you later, dude. Love you. <laughs> you know, maybe. But maybe we should soften that up and bring some truth to our greetings. What we believe. It's not easy for me. It probably won't be easy for you. But if you ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, anything's possible, right? Now, how about our relationship to others outside of the body of Christ? Does this hope fuel our desire? Just this gospel message we heard just now. To see others come to know him. I pray that it does in my heart. And I pray that it does in your heart as well. As we said earlier, and it's been pointed out that, you know, the, the culture that Paul was speaking to was very religious. But we live in a world where religion is supposed to be kept out of the public atmosphere. It's supposed to be kept out of the schools, out of the government, out of, you know, off the streets and only in the churches. But the people in Thessalonica, they worship their gods openly and freely. And often their prayers were prayers for health and well-being. And so it's, it's interesting for you and I, when we think about our prayers, often that is what dominates our prayers, is health and well-being. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. He says to come to be healed, to ask God to forgive it, to heal our bodies. But sometimes are we not missing the opportunity to pray for spiritual health for others? I mean, our physical bodies, you know, we know we're going to get what's new. We want to be well. We want to be healthy. We want to be able to thrive in our time. But are we praying for one another's spiritual health like Paul was doing? And so as we begin this next section, uh, verses 2 through 4, we see that its prayer is fueled by faith, love, and hope. This is Paul's gratitude. This is the kind of thing that he's praying for them. He says in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all. Now this, this means they are committed prayers. He says, making mention of you in our prayers. So they were committed and comforting prayers. It is very comforting, you guys know this, when somebody says with sincerity that they are genuinely been praying for you. 
or they let you know, hey, I'm praying for you. They reach out. It is so comforting for us. Why? Because we believe that God hears our prayers. And so he's committed to it. He's committed to, to constant prayer for these folks. He loves them. And that's an example for us and our love that we should express for one another. It's also a picture of transformed lives. He says, he starts to list the things that he's thankful for. And he starts to really kind of point to their, the evidence of their true salvation. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says the famous verse, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. But notice in that passage, this word substance means reality. It's the reality. It means, it means genuine faith that leads to faith that does what? That does works. So our faith leads to works. We're not saved by our faith, but a faith that works. Next, he goes on to talk about their labor of love. So he's going to cover faith, love, and hope. Their labor of love. Now, to labor is, as you know, to toil. It's to, you know, to dig a ditch. It's to pull the weeds. It's to whatever you're doing, mow the lawn, whatever it is, to toil. And this is love expressed by keeping God's commandments, loving and forgiving one another witnessing to those who need to hear the gospel, even if it causes you to endure pain and trouble. And that's what, because you and I should be controlled by Christ's love as we recognize, and we're going to see it today as we take communion, that he bore our sins on the cross. And that we, the reason we come together is now to provoke one another, or encourage one another to love and good works. So he says, you have your faith, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. What are they hoping for? Well, they're waiting for Jesus' return, for one. And, you know, when you look at the world around you, even though people are confused and they don't know what the future's like, most unsaved people... Since they don't know Jesus, they are not eagerly waiting for his return. 1 Thessalonians 5.2 For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So people are unaware that judgment is coming and they're unaware of Christ's return. But not believers. You have the patience of hope. And he says, in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God our Father. So now Paul looks at the evidence of their salvation and he remembers it in prayer before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, we're going to see Paul is now going to proclaim what many consider to be a theological mystery. And that is the doctrine of God's electing love. Notice he says, knowing beloved brethren... Uh, your election by God. Knowing your election by God. God's electing love should be a source of comfort rather than a source of contention. God's electing love, the fact that he chose you before the foundation of the earth, should be a source of comfort 
rather than a source of contention. He says it when he starts out. He says, knowing beloved brethren. This is, he's speaking beloved of God's love towards you, his delight. And then brethren. If you look around you, if you look to your left or to your right, you will find someone who you're going to spend eternity with. Beloved brethren. And so the comfort of being in God's family, the comfort of being in God's love, leads to the comfort of His sovereignty. Your election by God. The NASB says, His choice of you. Ekologē. Believers are elected and chosen by God to be His people. He calls us out of the world and away from an old life of sin. That's what God has done. Believers are elected and chosen by God to be fellow brothers and sisters, counting one another as beloved and precious. We're called out, we're chosen, we're elected by God to be among one another. It was never and will never be your idea. I had to come to that realization when I started to wrestle with this whole doctrine of predestination and election. You cannot deny it. Warren Wiersbe offers some words of advice. He says, The doctrine of divine election confuses some people and frightens others. Yet neither response is justified. A seminary professor once told me, Try to explain election and you may lose your mind, but explain it away and you may lose your soul. I like what John Corson writes. Some of you know John Corson, Pastor John He writes this, he says, The election of God is not a matter of the Lord casting his vote on our behalf because he sees something that impresses him. God elected us before the foundation of the earth apart from anything we have or haven't done. And then he quotes D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody said this, I'm glad the Lord chose me before I was born because I don't think he would have chosen me after I'd done some living. Again, from Warren Wiersbe, he says, As you read this letter, you discover the doctrine of the Trinity, that Christians believe in one God existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He writes, Keep in mind that all three persons are involved in our salvation. This will help you escape dangerous extremes that deny human responsibility or dilute divine sovereignty. For both are taught in the Bible. Remember this, both are taught in the Bible. And then he goes on to give his testimony. This is Warren Wiersbe, some of you are familiar with him. When he talks about the Trinity being involved in his salvation. This is good food for thought. He says, as far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the world began. As far as God the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. As far as God the Holy Spirit is concerned, I was saved on Saturday night in May 1945 when I heard the word and trusted Jesus Christ. At that moment, the entire plan fell together and I became a child of God. If you had asked me that night if I was one of the elect, I would have been speechless. 
At that time, I knew nothing about election. But the Holy Spirit witnessed in my heart that I was a child of God. And that's the important thing for you to remember. That you know, that you know, that you know that you're saved. Now, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, helps us. He's getting ready to help us with this doctrine. He connects the dots, if you will. He connects the next verse with verse 4, which we just read. Instead of leaving this doctrine of election, it's so important. Instead of leaving this doctrine of election in isolation, you know, it's part of God's eternal plan. And I don't understand any of it. He connects it with the things that we can see and we can be thankful for. And notice what he says in verses 5 through 10. Faith, power, joy, and testimony. That's what we're going to talk about right now. Faith, power, joy, and testimony. You know, if you, if you claim to be one of God's elect, if you claim to be a Christian, and your life has not changed... You're only fooling yourself. There will be a change. Because, as one writer put it, those who God chooses, He changes. It doesn't mean we're perfect. But we possess new life that cannot be hidden. Your life should express what you believe. And so he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only. They've heard a spirit-empowered gospel. This isn't just people saying things. This isn't some wise old sage or some, you know, uh, philosopher spouting off words. These words are empowered by the Spirit of God. That's what the gospel is. The gospel, Evangelon or Eongelion, he's speaking about those who preach the good news, the glad tidings. That there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven for those who place their trust in Christ. So he says, we didn't just come with speech, not simply with words. He says, but also in power. So the gospel was proclaimed with sincerity and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And also it says, in much assurance. There is full assurance. There is most certain confidence, and this describes their willingness and their freedom of spirit to bring the gospel to Thessalonica with deep conviction. That should express our attitude towards those around us as we desire to bring the good news to our community, to our friends and neighbors. And he says, as you know what kind of men we were among you for our sake. In other words, they came as servants Think about it. When you come into somebody's presence, when you come into their home, when you come into their life and you, you have a relationship with, you, with them, and especially for unsaved people, do you come demanding their you know, faithfulness to you and demanding their integrity and all these things? Or do you come as a servant to them? We put a lot on people, don't we? And if they don't meet our expectations, we're done with them. That is not the way to be. And so they were servants. They didn't demand to be served. And look at verse 6. He, he, now, he, he testifies. 
knowing that the gospel, it produces sincere faith. In verse 6, he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. It's, it's, you know, you say, well, no, I don't follow man. I follow Jesus. No, you and I need to be followers of those who are walking a life in Christ. Those who we've developed relationships with, who are consistent and faithful to walk with the Lord because we spur one another on when we exercise true and sincere faith. And notice he says also that the gospel, having received the word in much affliction, the gospel produces sustaining power. Remember, they were persecuted. He was only there for three weeks and they were being persecuted by their brothers and sisters. In that society, when you turn your allegiance over to Jesus, you forsake your family. It could cost you your life and your job because they were a very religious society, and you've turned your back now. It's not good manners not to worship the same gods that they do. And so the gospel produces sustaining power. Notice also the gospel produces supernatural joy. He says, with joy of the Holy Spirit. Gladness. In Luke 6, and 23, Jesus spoke of the joy that you have in Christ. He says, blessed are you when men hate you. What? Yes. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast your name as evil. Now think of that. They hate you. They exclude you, they revile you, and they cast your name as evil. They spread your name all over Facebook. What a rotten person you are because of your faith in Christ. It says, for the Son of Man's sake, what Jesus would say. You know what Jesus' answer to that was in verse 23? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Oh, woohoo. <laughs> now, come on, you know. Leap for joy because indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now he's speaking about the nation Israel. We're talking about what's going on over in Israel. We're talking about the fact that there are 6 to 9 million Jews in Israel right now. And that only maybe 25,000 believers. And they have not received their Messiah. And think of all the people around you. Think of all the statistics we see each and every year. Church attendance keeps going down further and further and further. So you will be persecuted by their culture if you stand for Christ. But notice in verse 7, the gospel produces a sure and solid testimony. Not only joyful, not only powerful in our lives, not only sincere faith, but it produces, the gospel produces a sure and solid testimony. He says in verse 7, so that you became examples, those that could be imitated to all in Macedonia and Achaia. And then finally in verse 8, as we continue, next, it says you have a testimony of love. You are evangelistic. You are willing to proclaim the word of the Lord to others. He says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth. That's the gospel message. Sounded forth means as a trumpet or a thunder. 
Not an obnoxious sound, but a sound that gets people's attention. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. In other words, they didn't just limit it to, oh, those people and my friends and those who I feel comfortable with, all around. And so Paul says, your faith is gone, your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't have to say anything. We don't, we don't have to do any witnessing because you are doing it on your own. You know, he's using it as a, as a sort of a, a, uh, an illustration, the fact that their, their faithfulness is so great that everybody hears about Jesus in their area. We, we sometimes get concerned about rapid growth of Christians. You know, you remember when you first got saved, a lot of times you're like, you're telling everybody, you're not, you know, but then stuff starts to happen in your life. Maybe you experience the soils. Maybe you experience hard times. Maybe you experience, uh, your, you know, your heart wasn't ready. And so we see somebody, we go, well, I'm just going to wait and see if this person's a true believer. Uh, I want to see fruit in their life. Well, it's not always superficial, is it? Sometimes it happens very rapidly. You've got to believe what's happening right now in the world. Many people who are stuck behind, uh, you know, the persecution of the Muslim world or the, or the, you know, battle lines of what's going on all around the world. And the Lord is speaking to them in dreams and visions. And the word is coming through evangelists and missionaries. You've got to believe that people are coming. They're growing up and they're coming to know the Lord. Because his word will not go return void. Warren Wiersbe says this, we talked about election, but he says election and evangelism, they go together. They go together. A person who says God will save those he wants to save and doesn't need my help, understands neither election nor evangelism, he writes. In the Bible, election always involves responsibility. God chose Israel and made them an elect nation so that they might witness to the Gentiles. Well, that is why the enemy has allowed these things to happen. He's still fighting the battle. That's why the terrible brutality that took place a week ago is happening. Is because Satan hates Israel. He hates that nation. And he does that because that nation brought forth the Messiah. The people of the Jewish nation don't, may not believe it, but Satan knows it to be true. Because Jesus went to the cross and paid the price. And so in verse 9, we see a testimony of faith and repentance with evidence of change. He says, for they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had for you. And how you turned to God from idols. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. One writer said this. He made an important point about that passage. They turned to God from idols, not from idols to God. What do we mean by that? What does that mean? Does that mean? In other words, they did not seek to clean up their own lives by themselves. When we say God meets you where you're at, he knows your situation. They did not try to reform themselves by turning away from idols and then turning to God. No, they turned to God right from the idols. They turned to God first, and then, with God's help and strength, they repented and turned away from their idols. And what did they turn to? To serve the living and true God. 
When they became believers, they abandoned their family and their community gods, committing the rest, what the rest of society was regarded as a very antisocial act. And then finally, today, we see at the end of every chapter, a testimony of hope. They are eagerly, eagerly awaiting Jesus' return. One reason that they had turned to God is because of the promise of Christ's return. And they said, and to wait for his son from heaven. We sang that song, so we wait. We wait on you. We're not freaking out. We're going we're gonna to pray for the needs. We're going to pray there's a burden on our heart. And we're going to tell others about Jesus. But we can still live our lives in patience as we await the Lord. We're not going to all, you know, pack up and move to some commune somewhere. Grow our own stuff. The Lord expects us to be out and about. But when we come together, we're going to celebrate, celebrate. Amen? So we wait patiently for whom he raised from the dead. To recall the dead to life. You know, when every time you witness to somebody and every time the gospel is spread out among a person, you witness when the change happens. And you may just be a seed sower. Or you may be someone who just waters but you witness a dead person coming to life in Christ. When you realize that the multitude of people that are without Christ, they're actually the walking dead. We need to think about that in our, how, we, how we approach things. Don't tell people you're thinking that, but <laughs> think about it in your own heart. And he says in verse 10, and we wait for the Son from heaven, from raised from the dead, and even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's what we have to look for. We will not be under God's wrath. Here we, we, we believe at Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City, in the rapture of the church, the calling of the church before the great tribulation begins. Simultaneous with it. And so we're not going to be under his wrath. So you see in this last verse, there's two promises. He's coming from heaven in the air for his church. The rapture, we'll see it in uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And he will deliver us from the seven-year tribulation on earth when the wrath of God is poured out. You can read all about that in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. That is the great tribulation. And the second thing that we're promised is that judgment is coming. And it's coming for those who have rejected God's offer of salvation and are now lost in their sin. As we get ready to take communion this morning, I'd like to ask us to just kind of dim the lights again and prepare for that. Uh, maybe we can remove the covers from the, from the elements, make it, make it ready for us to receive communion. <clears throat> I'd like to ask that we bow our heads together as a church family that we would all bow our heads and start to prepare our hearts and minds for communion. As we prepare for communion, there may be some of us, even here among us, or those who are hearing this message by way of the internet, who are uncertain or unwilling 
to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The final passage of our message today is clear. Judgment and wrath is coming. The world, all of its news, all of its chaos. And so perhaps God today is calling you, maybe somebody even here today. And again, I remind you, keep your heads bowed, please. Calling you to himself. Calling you to place your trust in Christ. Calling you to believe that he died and rose again to pay for your sins. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe you're wondering how to receive Christ as your Savior. And the question, if that's what you're wondering and you're thinking about in your heart, the question I have for you is, are you ready to accept His gift of salvation by repenting of your sins and surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if that's you today, if you're here and you're really, you know, you're sick and tired of the life you've been living and you're not certain of your salvation, I would like to offer you a prayer, a suggested prayer. And remember, the prayer is not what saves you. It's the faith that you place your life in Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today and you want to surrender your life to, Lord, to the Lord, that he would be your savior, you would pray like this. Father, I confess that I am a sinner and I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sins. I believe that he rose from the grave. I receive him now as my Lord, Savior, and friend. I choose to repent and turn away from my sin and I ask you to help me to live for you each and every day. Thank you for giving me a new life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you prayed that prayer, what a wonderful time to take your first communion as a believer in Christ. The worship team's going to sing a song. And while they lead their worship song, feel free to come up and take the communion elements and then return to your seats and I'll come back up and we'll have communion together. Amen? Amen. All right. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship your holy name. The sun comes up, it's a new day dawning, it's time to sing your song again. Whatever may pass and whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. 
Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name. Your slow to anger your name is great and your heart is kind for all your goodness I will keep on singing ten thousand reasons for my heart to find bless the Lord my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I'll worship Your holy name, and on that day. When my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending. Ten thousand years and then forevermore. Forever. the Lord of my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name, bless the Lord of my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name, sing like never before, oh my soul, I worship Your holy name, I worship Your holy name. Lord, I worship your holy name. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
He also presented the cup and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our service today. Lord, we thank you that you have given us so much grace and mercy, that you have given us so much hope. Lord, and I pray that your love would spread out and would overflow among us and through us and throughout the world that we exist in. And Lord, again, we continue to pray for not only the nation Israel and all that they're going through, but also the Palestinians and those that have been displaced from their homes and lost loved ones as well. We pray for all right now that are just uncertain about everything, uncertain about the future. We pray that they would receive the same hope that we have in you, the same love, the same truth. So Lord, we ask that you would bless our time we ask that you go before us as we step out today and all the things that we have, the activities we have planned. May it be used for your goodness and your glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse line by line. God bless.